So let's read this. This is Esther chapter 7. This is God's word. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is God's word, his historically accurate word. Let's pray. Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that you're here. We believe that you're here. And that this is your word. And that it matters for our lives. Would you help us to honestly interact with it? Would you push it down into our hearts? Holy Spirit, we need you to do that. I need you to do that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we love crime TV shows. We love crime television. If you don't believe me, let me just name a couple of crime TV shows. You've got NCIS, Law and Order, Blue Bloods, Blacklist, Monk, Psych. There's a few dozen. I could keep going. Uh, why do we love these shows so much? Uh, they, ha- they all have the same basic plot. A bad guy commits some sort of crime. You get to either witness it or you see the aftermath of it. Then your team of elite crime fighters is on the scene, and it looks like maybe the bad guy is going to get away. And then at the last minute, they uncover a piece of evidence. It's just what they needed to pin him. 
and justice is served. The guy confesses. He's hauled away. And we rejoice. And why do we love this? Why do we love these shows? Why do we watch the same plot over and over again? We've seen it a thousand times and we just love it every time. Because we're created in the image of a just God. A God who will bring justice. This is why we love these shows. But when we look out in the world, we see a world filled with injustice. Our experience is that often justice does not come. Whether it's a bully on the playground or a coworker cutting corners at work, we're used to seeing guilty people get away with it and innocent people suffering under their sins. So we grow, we grow tired. And we watch these shows because it scratches our itch, our itch for justice, a God-given desire. As we look at our passage today, we see a glimpse into the reality that God does bring justice for his people. We see that the guilty will face the consequences for their actions and that God is just. And for just a moment in our passage, our God-given desire for justice is satisfied. The guilty is condemned. So with that in mind, as we, as we look at the passage today, I want to answer this question. What does it look for us to live in light of God's justice? What does it look like for us to live in light of God's justice? First, we're bold. So here we are. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, the, queen, uh, the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish? So here they are, they're eating, they've already had their, this is the second uh, day of feasting that Esther's invited them to. They've already feasted and now they're having their after dinner drinks. And finally, Esther is going to speak her request. We've been waiting for this moment for six chapters basically, and here it comes. Look at verses three and four. If I have found favor in your sight, O king... And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. What's, what's her request here? It's simple. Let us live. Let us live. And she even goes on to say, look, if, if we had only been sold as slaves, I wouldn't waste your time. You see how humble this is. I wouldn't waste your time if we were just being sold as slaves, but this is our lives. It's good for no one to destroy us. She chooses her words very carefully. She says, destroy, kill, annihilate, the, actual, the same language that the actual decree uses in a, f- a few chapters earlier. Look at how the, the king reacts. This is, this is news to him, right? He has no idea what's going on right in his own kingdom. Look at verse 5. He says, in anger, he says, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Of course, we know that it's the king's own signet ring, his own seal that approved this decree. We know that, but he's just finding out for the first time. He's angry. And in the presence of of the two most powerful men on the planet, Esther is about to have to put all her cards on the table. 
Look at what she says in verse 6. She points to Haman, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Esther responds quickly, clearly, boldly in the presence of the man she's accusing, that's Haman, and the only man that, she, that can actually hold Haman accountable, the king, she brings this accusation. But realize something else, that by exposing Haman, she has also exposed herself as a Jew. As soon as she brings this accusation forward, she is liable to be killed under this decree of death. But she's the only one. She knows this. She's the only one with the information and the access to bring this accusation. If Esther says nothing, the Jews will be annihilated. Uh, In this case, and in many cases, justice only comes because someone risked everything to tell the truth. When I was in ninth grade, uh, I was in a public high school in Charlotte, and it wasn't the best high school, but I had uh, one teacher who actually liked, until this happened, um, went into class that day, just a normal day, he closes the door, he's got a Bible in his hand, which is weird, it's public school, you know, you're not supposed to talk religion in public school, and he pulls it out and he starts going on an angry rant. He's declaring, this thing is filled with lies. It demeans women. It promotes slavery. If you believe in the Bible, you've got to be crazy to believe in the Bible. It's nothing but trouble. So what do you think I did? I was 15. I was a professing Christian. I was the son of a pastor. Still the son of a pastor. Um, What do you think I did? I'd like to tell you I stood up and said, you're wrong. That's not true. Or I'd like to tell you that I at least went to the administration and said, hey, you've got a teacher who's going off the rails in class. Um, But what I really did is I slumped down in my chair, kind of hid behind the guy in front of me, and I wondered, does anyone know that I'm a Christian? Does anyone know I'm a Christian? That teacher went on to teach for another 10 or more years. And you can imagine that was probably not the only rant he went on. And I actually heard from a friend of mine a few years ago that he actually retired down to the Caribbean after finishing his teaching career. I say all this to illustrate the point that the only thing necessary... For the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Don't be like me, who, who worried, I was just worried. I was thinking, what about my reputation? What's going to happen if I say something? Be like Esther, who says, if I perish, I perish. As Christians, we are called to be willing to expose evil, even when it comes at a great personal cost. What does this look like for you practically? Well, it's not an everyday everyday thing, but there will come a time when you'll have to stand up and say something. 
It looks like, practically, it looks like bringing facts to those with the authority to bring justice. This isn't gossip or slander. Look at Esther. She carefully is considering what she's going to say. Her words are very specifically chosen. With real facts, she's using the actual language that the decree used. And she's bringing them to the only guy who has the authority to bring justice. That's the king. This is what we're called to do as Christians. Now you may be thinking, sure, I want to tell the truth, um, but I've tried that before and nothing's happened. And that's absolutely possible. That has happened to me as well. How many times have we seen justice fail, even when we speak the truth? You've probably all witnessed it. But not this time. (laughs) Not in this story. Not in chapter 7 of the book of Esther. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Okay, so what's going through the king's mind here? He gets this news. You know, things are not all going well in his kingdom. His queen and his number two are at odds. He storms out of the room. It's likely that he's, he's finally putting the pieces together of what's going on. His queen is Jewish. Now he knows. He signed a decree to annihilate the Jews. Uh-oh, that's a problem. The decree cannot be reversed, and it's signed with his own signet ring. So this accusation, as you can imagine, put the king in a pickle. A pickle. Put him in a pickle. A dilemma. He's got a big dilemma on his hands. He can hardly condemn Haman because he's the one who signed the thing with his signet ring. And this is his number two. But look at verse eight. Look what happens. So the king leaves. He's got a dilemma. He's angry. And then he returns in verse eight. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So Haman is falling down at the queen's feet, just at the very exact moment that the king is walking back in. And of course, we we don't know this because we're Westerners living in America today, but to be within seven steps of the queen is a big no-no. It's already just, you cannot do that. And add on to the fact that the king is not in the room makes it even worse. So he's breaking all kinds of rules here. And of course, you know, the king walks in and he's like, falling forward towards the queen, and it's, that's the last straw. This was the final straw that sealed Haman's death. And Nathan's talked about this in week, weeks before, just the reality that God has lined up these dominoes, 
And he's bringing justice in his own perfect timing. Remember, the king's sleepless night came at the right moment. Haman's decree came at the right moment. The fact that Haman made gallows, which he thought he was making for Mordecai, but are actually, as it turns out, for him. God waited for Haman to honor Mordecai. He waited for that exact moment for the king to, back, to walk in. And then if you notice, uh, the eunuch, Harbona, apparently doesn't like Haman very much because he, he reminds the king, hey, there's a, there's a big um, gallows we can hang him on. Um, all of this, all of this because God's justice comes right at the perfect time. And it's so poetic. And finally, Haman, if you remember, he set out to destroy the Jews because one Jew would not fall at his feet. That's how all this started. Mordecai would not bow to him. And now it's ending because Haman fell down at the feet of a Jew. God's timing is perfect right down to the very second that the king walks back in the room. God's justice is coming, and we can wait patiently for it. God's justice is kind of inevitable. Um, imagine you're in a pool, and I throw you a beach ball, and I say, hold this underwater. And you say, okay, I can probably hold one beach ball underwater. I throw you another. What about two? What about three? What about four? How many can you hold underwater and for how long? It's only a matter of time until it comes bursting to the surface. The truth is like that. Justice is like that because God is just. I was in uh, Publix two days ago and I was thinking about justice and I looked down and there's a newspaper, I can't remember, it was like the Somerville newspaper, and it says, uh, cold case from 1998, solved. And there had been a woman who was murdered, that's 24 years ago, and a piece of DNA evidence came up last week that got the guy. The original suspect that they thought had done it, and his, the clock was ticking, and justice eventually came, slowly but surely, Some of you may have told the truth to the right person at the right time in the right way only to see it ignored or swept under the rug. This is just an absolute fact of life in this broken world. In moments like this, God calls us to wait. He calls us to trust him, to trust his timing and his justice. We're not to try for revenge or slander in order to get justice, but to trust God's timing. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 7. It speaks exactly to this point. The psalmist says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. We can trust 
And we can know, we can be confident that justice will come. When God decides your time has come, there is no one, doesn't matter if you're first in the kingdom, second in the kingdom, third in the kingdom, there is no one, no matter how powerful, no matter how prestigious, no matter how well-loved by everyone, there is no one who is beyond the reach of God's justice. And again, you might be thinking, okay, this sounds great, but I have seen people, I've seen people get away with it all the way until they die. I've seen people bring secrets right down into their grave and never be punished. It's true. It's true that people have done very wicked things and have lived to a ripe old age. Even as we look at Haman's case, it took a great act of bravery on Esther's part and basically a miracle in order to bring him to justice. And as I said at the beginning, it's, it's just true that we live in a society, in a world, a broken world, where justice, true justice, is a rare thing. And it often comes slowly, like that 24-year-old cold case. But why is this? Why does justice come slow, so slowly? If it's true that God is just, why is it so slow? Well, there's many reasons. But let me give you one, and I think this is the main reason. This comes from uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Actually answers this question. Which, by the way, is answer to another question. Uh, why is there evil in the world? Okay, those are related questions. Why, why is justice slow and why is there evil in the world? Here's an answer from God's word. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see the answer here in this passage? Justice is slow because God is patient with us. But Haman, he is like so many evil men. He sees God's patience and he takes that to mean justice is never coming. The Bible again tells us exactly what Haman's thinking, not in this passage, but in Psalm 10, it tells us what wicked people think. It says... The wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The wicked renounce God and says in his heart, you will not call to account. You see, Haman thinks, like all even evil men, that he will never be held accountable. Here's, here's the bad calculation. This is how it goes. And it's probably, this is, you have made this calculation before. We've all made this calculation. You do something you shouldn't do. You wait. Is there punishment? Am I going to get in trouble for this? Nothing happens. Oh, I guess there's no consequences. I'll do something else bad. There's no consequences. Oh, I guess I won't get in trouble. Let me do it again. Let me do it more. Let me do it worse. This is exactly the logic 
and the bad calculation that we make. But this verse that I quoted earlier, 2 Peter 3, goes on. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heaven will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Thieves don't warn you when they're coming. And the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, there is no such thing as bringing secrets down to your grave. There is no such thing as that. It just depends on how far you zoom out. And in this verse, the Apostle Paul is zooming all the way out. And he's saying, there will be a day of reckoning. And when it comes, it will come like a thief. Without warning, without any opportunity to to turn from our sins, without an opportunity to say sorry, When exposure comes, when that day comes, it's already too late. This day is known as Judgment Day. So I'll appeal to you, do not be like Haman. Do not mistake God's patience for a lack of justice. The only time to turn to the Lord is now. When judgment comes, it will be too late. Look at Haman. He thinks he's going to this feast. He's going to chum it up with the king. He's going to receive honor. He's looking forward to these parties. He bragged about it the night before. But little does he know, he's going to his sentencing hearing. He's going to be put to death. And the king's wrath will be nothing compared to the wrath of God. It's been said that uh, the job of a pastor or a preacher is to help people live well and to die well. And that is my desire for everyone here. That's my my desire for you. is to live well and, and to die well. So how can we be ready for that day? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us. It says, By grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thanks be to God that he is not only just, God is not only just, but he's merciful, He has provided a way for us to be ready for that day. Are there any teenagers in here who are going to be taking a driving test soon? If you want your license someday, you're going to have to take a road test at the DMV. Let me tell you about how my road test went. I was nervous. I hadn't really practiced. My parents told me, you should probably practice, Brandon. I didn't listen. 
So I showed up. I'm nervous. I'm sweaty, shaky. The guy's intimidating. He's kind of looking at me. All right, son, come on, go out to the car. He's got his clipboard. He's taking notes. So we go out to the car. He tells me to put all the blinkers on, test the lights. Then he gets in the car and he says, all right, go ahead and back out of the spot and let's get going. So I turn the key and I kind of lean backwards. You know, I'm backing up. And um, all of a sudden, the, the steering wheel is hard to turn. I'm like, why is this hard to turn? We're rolling backwards. I'm parked on a little bit of a hill, rolling backwards. And then I go to press the brake. I'm like, the brake is hard to press. What's going on? The guy looks over at me, and he goes, sir, stop the car. He's like, you're going to want to turn the vehicle on, sir. <laughs> and at that moment, I knew I had failed the test. Um, <laughs> But he, he said, okay, you need to turn the car on. I had turned it on only halfway, right? The dash lights came on, but the engine wasn't going. So that's not a good sign. If you're, if you're this guy, given the test, you're like, well, this guy obviously doesn't know what he's doing. Um, but he let me keep going, which, you know, whether or not that was a good choice, I don't know. But So we, we pull out. I do eventually turn the car on. We pull out. I back out. We go onto the highway. The highway speed limit's 55, but I'm nervous, I'm sweaty. I'm shaky. I had just done that. So I was driving 40 miles an hour in a 55. And he, he looks, sir, you need to speed up. This is like you're going dangerously slow. Then we pull into a neighborhood. And he says, all right, I want you to do a three-point turn. And I can remember saying, how do I do that? <laughs> and he's like, this guy's hopeless. Um, I really should have practiced. He didn't ask me to parallel park. I know that's supposed to be part of the test, but he didn't bother asking me. He's, we went back to the DMV. Um, he looked over at me with his clipboard, and he said, well, sir, you failed the road test today. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, he told me what I did wrong. The list wasn't short. And he said, if you, you, know, you want to pass, if you want to get your license, you'll have to come back another time. Uh, that's a true story. Now we're leaving that true story. Imagine this. Imagine he looks at me and he says, so you failed today, uh, but there is another option. Well, okay, another option. Uh, you can take the test again in our self-driving Tesla. I'm like, oh. Okay, so how much does that cost? Oh, it doesn't, doesn't cost anything. Uh, can I use the self-driving feature? Yes, actually, we insist you use the self-driving feature. And we've got it pre-programmed. It's going to do a three-point turn for you. It'll drive the right speed limit. The car will turn on. Um, has anyone ever failed the driver's test using the Tesla? Oh, no, no, there's no way to fail. Um, I would take that option. If they give you that option, when you take, get your driver's license, take that option. Um, I didn't have that option. Uh, we have all failed the test that is life. All of us. All of us have failed to keep the commandments that God requires. None of us can stand before God on this day, on Judgment Day, 
on our own merit and not be condemned. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's failure. It was just for the DMV official to fail me that day. It was easily just. And the city of Charlotte was safer for it. In the same way, God would be just to condemn each of us. But God is merciful. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, when we trust in Jesus, we're abandoning our failed road test and climbing in the self-driving Tesla and you can't mess it up because Jesus has already driven the course for us. Everything that God requires, he supplies in Christ. No more, no less. So if you have not accepted God's free gift, please, please would you accept it. There is no other way to stand before God on judgment day and be declared righteous. Christian, Christians, I have good news for you. You are ready for judgment day. You can have great confidence in Christ's finished work. In fact, we Christians are the only ones that are ready for this day. Haman, not ready. When our faith is in Christ, we are totally ready for that day. I was uh, in the Middle East when I was a young boy on a mission trip. And I remember we visited a mosque. And at the mosque, you watch, or we would watch the Muslims pray. And when they pray, they are on the ground, prostrate, and they actually hit their head uh, on the floor. And it's a sign of, shall we say, good religion if you have a bruise on your forehead. Because it shows you've been submitting to Allah Uh, One of the guys that we were with was actually an ex-Muslim, and he's now a believer. He had accepted Christ. And someone asked him, what's going on in the minds of these Muslims as they pray like that? He said, oh, I'll tell you what's going on. Fear. Complete and utter fear. A few years ago, I got even more clarity on that statement and kind of understood why they're so afraid. Um, I would visit a mosque in Charlotte uh, in hopes to strike up a conversation with Muslims and, and share Jesus with them. And I'll never forget asking one of the church leaders at this particular mosque, and I said, how can you know that God will judge you righteous on judgment day? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I can't know. I can only hope that I have done enough, that I've prayed enough, that I've confessed enough, that I've given enough, that he will weigh my deeds and I will be good enough for God. 
You see, Muslims don't have any confidence because their faith is in their own works. But Christians, we as Christians, you as Christians, you can have complete confidence. You are not like Muslims or any other false religion. You have no reason to fear death, no reason to fear judgment when your faith is in Christ. You are ready for that day. Because everything that God requires of you, he has supplied in Christ. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your justice and for your mercy. Lord, it's true. I'm in a large way, Lord, I look forward to Judgment Day because the wicked will be condemned. We grow tired of seeing evil men get away with it over and over again. But Lord, we thank you even more for your mercy because if it weren't for your mercy, none of us would be here today. None of us could stand before you and be declared righteous. So we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.